Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions, and you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're so grateful for all the support and feedback we get from you, the listeners. We have a very interesting show for you today. On this episode, we're looking at arguably the most controversial figure to hold a senior leadership role in the IRA, Sean Russell. Russell's contested legacy is still keenly debated up to the present day. To discuss Russell's life, we're very pleased to be joined by Jared Shannon, and two excellent articles he wrote about Sean Russell are available on the Irish Story website. Jared Shannon is a historian from Skerries in County Dublin and a graduate of the School of History and Geography in DCU. He is currently working on a biography of the IRA Chief of Staff during the Civil War, Liam Lynch, for Merriam Press. You can find his website at jaredshannon.com. Jared, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Colin. Glad to be here. Now, you're a Northsider like myself, and I think even long, long, long before I knew who Sean Russell was, I'd always see a statue on the way into town passing by Fairview. I think that's how most people would have known him, as the big statue in Fairview Park. Yeah, like it definitely was the beginning of my own interest in Russell being aware of that statue in Fairview, but particularly all the controversy around him, be it the statue getting defaced or kind of apparently destroyed at one point. Then, of course, the new statue that replaced the old one going up in 2009. And I suppose, like even my own recent research was inspired by all the controversy last year of the Sean Russell statue, but sort of followed similar debates worldwide as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement, the sort of debate over different statues and monuments in particular public spaces with all the controversy the statue has gotten over the years i don't think we've ever had a more kind of interesting intervention than the then t-shirt leo radker suggesting it perhaps should be removed because of the perception that russell was a nazi collaborator well there's been other kind of debates over the statue before this was definitely the most volatile one definitely with a typically lively uh, debate on rt's liveline and i believe there was a commemoration by republicans and you know different groups and that at the statue for sean russell so he's always been, or rather his statue has always been a flashpoint for controversy over the previous decades. And Jerry, who was Sean Russell and where was he born? What was his social background? Yeah, so Sean Russell was originally born John Russell on the 30th of October, 1893. We don't know much about his early life beyond what we find in the basic census information. He was born at 41 Lower Buckingham Street in inner city Dublin. He was the youngest among three sons and four daughters of his father, James, the clerk, and his mother, Mary. When we look at the 1911 census then, Russell is then age 17 and he's working as a draper's assistant. And by then the Russell family is residing at 76 North Strand in the Mountjoy area of Dublin. Now, not uniquely for a military figure like Russell or a mainly military figure like Russell, he never left any account of his early life or any kind of statement explaining where his ideology or his Republican beliefs came from. I made the acquaintance of a relative of his last year who emphasized to me that the Russells would have come from what was then like the severe tenement life in the inner city Dublin. And he suggested that that would have perhaps radicalized Sean to a degree in terms of how he later developed his republicanism. He seems to have joined uh, the Irish Volunteers in 1914. It's funny, actually, I came across uh, a Civil War prison register in the Irish Military Archives last year, and there's a brief bio of him in that that said he was actually a member of the National Volunteers very briefly, which is interesting. But in any case, of course, he goes with the McNeil split when that occurs in 1914. 
There's a very interesting witness statement in the Bureau of Military History from a man called Liam Daly, who seemed to have known Russell well in the E Company of the 2nd Battalion of the Irish Volunteers. And when he met Russell in January 1916, he writes that how he was struck by how even at this early stage and without any military training, Sean infused the high standard of efficiency in a small group. Of course, by then, Sean Russell was going from John to Sean, so we must assume that he had some involvement in the Gaelic League as well. When we come to the Easter Rising, he was appointed second in command to Oscar Trainer, and he led a group of rebels to take over the Metropole Hotel on O'Connell Street on the orders of James Connolly. Trainer actually wrote a lengthy profile of Russell for a Republican periodical in 1927, and he wrote of Russell that during the terrible experience for the citizen soldiers, during the intensive shelling and eventual burning out of our position, Russell was an inspiration to all of us. And actually, Trainer was actually writing that article during a period in which Russell was imprisoned in 1927, and Trainer was then a Fianna Fáil TD, which is very interesting to note. During Easter week, Russell and his comrades had to flee the Metropolitan Hotel. They joined the GPO garrison, and they were there in Moore Street at the time of the surrender at the end of Easter week, 1916. Like many others, he goes to Frank Gogh. He is released then in 1917. You know, he was involved in quite severe combat during the Rising there, by all accounts, performed well. But he says an interesting thing afterwards, which you quote in your article, that if it wasn't for Easter week, I'd have ended up in a monastery. What do you think he might have meant by that? It's very interesting that when he makes that comment, he's replying to Liam Daly when Liam Daly asks him, how does he feel now that he's a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood? Liam Daly had arranged for Russell to be sworn into the IRB in 1919, and that's what inspired the comment from Russell. I think what Russell means like that, that if he hadn't gone through the experience of Easter week and he had fought, you know, the front lines, so to speak, he would not have been kind of further radicalised as a result. I think it seems to be that particular experience he had during the Rising inspired him to remain with the volunteers. Is there a part of Russell's character where he wants to be intensely devoted to one thing, like a monk in a monastery? Because that kind of describes his IRA career as well. What a lot of people comment on later on with Russell is his single-mindedness in terms of his devotion to the IRA organization and his persistence in pursuing a particularly military path towards Irish independence. So yeah, like it definitely seemed to have been seeded very much from Easter week 1916. The experience he had during Easter week seems to have kind of embedded in, in them the belief that this is the way to fight for Irish independence. This is the only way to achieve the object of an independent Irish Republic. Yeah, and I mean, it, the point I'm making, I guess, is he just seems to be very devoted to this one idea. It seems to be almost a part of his, his psyche. Well, very much so. A lot of Russia's contemporaries would have also been of a similar military mindset within the volunteers and, of course, become the IRA. And they would eventually have gone on to, you know, exclusively the political routes, particularly through the 1920s and 30s. So if Russell had that mindset then, it's not particularly unique to him, but it certainly is unique to him as time goes on after the revolutionary period that he maintains that belief in those methods in pursuit of Irish independence. So, Jared, after 1916 and after he's released from his internment, how does he continue his career then within the IRA? Well, he rejoins E Company. He continues to impress his superiors. He's involved with different different kind of efforts to revitalize the volunteers in the period. He, you know, securing arms, recruiting new members. Liam Daly, actually of interest in his witness statement, describes an incident where Russell asked him to go to an old arms store of the National Volunteers to retrieve ammunition and guns, which perhaps suggests a familiarity with the National Volunteers and pre-rising period. By May 1920, you know, already over a year into the War of Independence, he succeeds Frank Henderson as commander of the 2nd Battalion of the Dublin Brigade. And it's actually in this capacity that Russell was central to the planning and carrying out of IRA operations on the 21st of November 1920, what we know, of course, as Bloody Sunday. John Russell had a pretty central planning role in Bloody Sunday. Yeah, very much so. He seems to be very central to the planning of the different operations. And the task specifically assigned to him was selecting units of IRA men to carry out these executions along with members of the squad. The only operation where there wasn't members of the squad seems to be at the Gresham Hotel, and he appointed Patrick Moran to head the operation there. Of interest, the previous night of Bloody Sunday, Russell seems to have addressed the men taking part of the operations in Tara Hall and Gloucestershire Street, which, of course, we now know as Sean McDermott Street. And Harry Colley, who's later a Fianna Fáil TD, mentions this in his witness statement. And Russell there reminded those present that it was vitally necessary for the success of our fight that the spies be removed, that no country had scruples about shooting enemy spies in wartime, that if any man had moral scruples about going on this separation, he was at full liberty to withdraw, and no one would think any the worse of him, that he wanted every man to be satisfied in his conscience that he could properly take part in this separation. It's very striking that Collie seems to remember that speech in great detail. 
course, the following day, Russell is also involved in another curious incident at Crow Park. There seems to have been intelligence received that there was going to be some sort of response to the assassinations at Crow Park that day. And Russell and other IRA members, including Harry Colley, actually argued with, you know, some of the Crow Park officials about letting the crowd into the park. But their worries were sadly dismissed at the time. And there seems to have been as well as that a sort of an attempt to perhaps rescue Dick McKee and Paddy Clancy and of course Connor Clune was with them as well from Bridewell but of course they're actually taken to Dublin Castle as we know the previous night and that didn't go as planned. But in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, he seems to have quite impressed Michael Collins. And Oscar Trainer, who was appointed the head of the Dublin Brigade once Paddock Clancy is killed, he had great kind of designs on Russell actually being his vice commandant in the brigade. So much so that he actually had quite a row with Collins over where, where Russell was going to be brought to next. Collins was eyeing Russell for the role of director of munitions on, on the IRA GHQ staff, which is certainly quite a step up from the previous role. Trainer kind of decided to let Russell go and he even later remarked that Russell was a tremendously keen volunteer and had an extraordinary bent for organising and establishing matters of this kind. He would have kind of really cultivated that reputation from his early days in E-Company. There seems to have been some resistance in some of the ammunition staff at Russell's appointment. It's kind of thought that he didn't really have a particular knowledge of armaments and ammunition and so on, but he took the role very well by all accounts. He established and oversaw various munition factories throughout the city, and each of these factories seemed to have served a particular purpose, the casting of grenades or brasswork and the finishing of the grenade's shell. Finally, the insertion of the explosive material and the detonator and trainer notes this particularly in his account of Russell's career in the movement in 1927. Well, that's the thing, Jared, isn't it, that becoming director of munitions, it's not just the role itself as director of munitions. He's also right in the leadership now of the IRA during the War of Independence. Yeah, no, he's very much forefront of IRA GHQ once he's in that position. In that he's actually in that very famous painting that you can see in the Soldiers and Chiefs exhibition in the National Museum of the IRA GHQ membership at the time of the truce in 1921. And it's very interesting when you look at that painting now and you see Richard Mulcahy and Liam Mellows, Seamus O'Donovan, of course, and Sean Russell himself. People who not only went very different paths later in life, but very, very different paths during the Civil War itself. Of course, he opposes the treaty on its signing in December 1921. He joins with Rory O'Connor and others in January 1922 in their opposition to the treaty. Ernie O'Malley has a very vivid description of Russell speaking at a meeting these officers have in January 1922. On the Civil War split, he's relatively mm. unusual as a member of GHQ, mm. which is headed by Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy. Yes. Opposed the treaty. Why do you think that was? I think his reason for opposing the treaty, very similar to figures like Rory O'Connor and Lee Mellis, who are kind of exclusively military figures, they weren't really kind of involved in the political activity or the political aspects of the revolutionary movement. So his primary belief was in the strength of the IRA and, you know, the strength of their armed actions. So, I mean, I suppose when he sees the politicians, you know, signing the treaty and the majority pushing for it, that, you know, Russell feels like the IRA should lead the way in opposing it. We're left with kind of the absence of him leaving a statement of intent as to why exactly he did. Like the only GHQ members who opposed the treaty are Rory O'Connor, Lee Mellow, Seamus Donovan and Sean Russell, all who went particularly militant paths over the course of the Civil War. And of course, the case of O'Donovan and Russell uh, beyond that. When I mean, the Civil War itself, he doesn't really have a very, you know, heavy involvement in it, particularly that he's arrested. I mean, he remains director of munitions in the anti-treaty IRA. He's kind of captured then towards the end of the year. There's actually a very funny aspect of an interview with, with Nos Toomey and Yunchi McKeown, where Toomey says that McKeown, that Russell had a particular disguise during the Civil War. He'd wear a false wig, have a pipe. And that one particular DMP officer approached Toomey and said, you might want to tell Russell to change his disguise. It's not very good. I think there's an attempt to sort of replicate the success he had as the director of munitions during the War of Independence, his different kind of arms dumps and so on. But he's captured towards the end of 1922. He's involved in the hunger strikes within the prisons during 1923-24. And he's one of the last actually to be released in mid-1924 of the Republicans. Ernie O'Malley actually mentions that in his last chapter of The Singing Flame. Well, what do you think Russell's attitude then was to the new free state once he had been released from prison? Russell seems to have been that part of the element of the IRA where it's a period of rebuilding, rearming, recruiting, but at some undetermined point in the future, you know, conflict will break out again. I mean, the free state for them represents British dominion. It's, it's a continuation of British rule. When it comes to 1926, the split within Sinn Féin, much of the anti-treaty support goes with de Valera into Fianna Fáil. Of course, Russell doesn't follow that. There is a rump within the IRA that remains very much opposed to political activity and, and the state itself. 
From 1927 to 36, Russell holds the rank of Quartermaster General of the IRA staff. In the role, he's expected to be responsible for the supply and distribution of arms and equipment and ammunition to different IRA units. And this actually enables Russell to build up key contacts within IRA units across the country. In 1925, an IRA delegation goes to the Soviet Union. This is made up of Russell, Pam Murray and Gerald Boland. Gerald Boland, of course, is later a very robust and efficient Minister for Justice under a later Fianna Fáil government that tries to oppress the IRA. Of course, at the time, he was one of the main leaders of the IRA. Not much is really known about Russell's involvement in this delegation and his meeting with Soviet officials. Pam Murray seems to be the main drive there. He seems to have met, actually, even with Joseph Stalin himself. And Stalin seems very skeptical of the IRA's capacity, you know, an aid to the Soviet Union within Ireland. I mean, with the Soviet IRA connection is very interesting. It doesn't last very long. Between 1925 and 1927, the IRA is given several hundred of pounds a month from the Soviet Union to, I suppose, fund their arms, supply and that. It kind of tepers off in mid-1927. What's very interesting is that in November 1927 at the IRA convention there, the IRA pledges to aid the Soviet Union in the case of an invasion of Britain, which is very interesting when you kind of think of later on in 1939 and 1940. And there's a brilliant article on History Ireland by Tom Ann, which kind of details the connection at the time. But I mean, as well as that, like the IRA is keeping a very wary eye on the developments of Fianna Fáil in this period. In 1925, the IRA withdraws the support for Sinn Féin and the rump of the, the anti-treaty second all that survives. I mean, the general perception is that Russell seems to keep out of the political debates that are going on with the IRA at this time that lead to the formation of Serra in the early 1930s, that brief attempt by the IRA to have like a political socialist inclined party. Sean Cronin, who was an IRA chief of staff in the 1950s, later commented that he felt Russell, of all the IRA leaders of the 1920s and 30s, was probably the most conservative politically and socially. And another IRA leader at the time, George Gilmore, felt Russell was not really interested in political questions. His sole interest was in armaments. He would patiently refuse to talk politics. So when you have these debates going on in the late 1920s and early 30s by figures such as Pat O'Donnell and Frank Ryan as to what sort of direction the IRA, particularly in the South, should go in this time, Russell seems to be fairly aloof from many of these debates. By the time of the 1932 election in which the aftermath Fianna Fáil are able to form a government, Russell seems to be of those in the IRA leadership who's sort of a cautious support for Fianna Fáil in the hopes that once he's in power, de Valera would declare the republic. Well, as you said there, Jared, you were talking about his political views and him being conservative generally or thought of as conservative. Have we any ideas whatsoever mm. in terms of his politics, any concrete politics that he had in this period? To be blunt, no, we don't. I mean, consistently what is said is that Sean is single-minded, he is militant, he has a belief in the IRA, he has a belief in the overthrow of British rule in Ireland by force. That seems to be his sole main drive, and that seems to be the sole means by which he believes that the IRA can achieve its aims. Again, like he didn't leave an account of his beliefs or explaining why he did this. What I find very interesting about Russell, he's a very popular public speaker at Republican commemorations and at different kind of rallies, particularly at Bolton Like, there doesn't seem to be like a monument of nailing he seems to say no to. The relations between the IRA and Fianna Fáil seem to sour from 1933 onwards. He speaks at one particular commemoration in which he sort of comments on the IRA's relationship to Fianna Fáil at the time. So, for instance, there's an account of Russell speaking at an Easter commemoration at Drumbo Castle in April 1923. And of course, this was the site of the execution of four anti-treaty IRA volunteers during the Civil War. And he refers to the current political setup in the Free State. And here, Russell refers to, quote, how all our national weaknesses are due to short-sightedness, to our proneness to strain, to bypass, where our true national vision becomes obscured. And he then goes on to note how, quote, our moral right to arm, to equip, to defend our nation by arms is questioned. He talks to those gathered about how you have a national obligation and a moral right to fight for your national rights or country's freedom. And he goes on to dismiss Fianna Fáil efforts in government so far. And he refers to the entry into the Leinster House Parliament in 1927 as, quote, a desertion of the Republic. And he refers to Fianna Fáil's constitutional dismantling of the various terms of the treaty, where Russell himself argues that, quote, instead of scrapping the treaty, Fianna Fáil offer you a popularised treaty. He displays little ambiguity when he implores Republicans to never again allow it to happen, that moral right give way to political convenience. So I think that's a very clear statement of intent as to where he stands at that point. But it's only from political speeches like that can we really glean what he thought at the time. You know, the IRA comes out of the Civil War and it's initially thinking of basically fighting another civil war. A large group breaks away, goes into Fianna Fáil, basically wants to reform the free state in its own image. And that comes to power in 1932. And they do many things that anti-treaty Republicans liked. A lot of them liked, so for example, dismantling the Oath of Allegiance, abolishing the Senate, getting rid of the land annuities, legalizing the IRA for a little while. But then, isn't it fair to say that the IRA is in a period after 
the Fianna Fáil government beds down, where they're not exactly sure what their purpose is anymore or what direction they should go. Yeah, absolutely. No one better sums that up for me than Moss Toomey, who was the IRA chief of staff for 10 years between the mid-20s and 30s. And Toomey refers to, at one point, that he never imagined that Republicans would have a free state they could not attack. Now, I'm paraphrasing there. So the IRA is very much left in disarray as to how to organise, how to respond to Fianna Fáil. There's a ban actually even lifted on them when Fianna Fáil came to power in 1932. Prisoners are released. All of this is for De Valera and his government to encourage the IRA to not only recognise the state, but use its institutions as a means to dismantle the treaty settlement and pave the way for something resembling a republic. I think when looking at that, the very much on the part of the IRA, there's a lack of acceptance that the political dispensation has changed with Fianna Fáil coming to power. And it takes arguably a long time for certain leadership figures within the IRA to recognise this. And Russell is no exception. He seems to have had a belief, as I mentioned early on, that you know, Fianna Fáil could perhaps declare an independent republic that way once they come into power. He writes uh, several years after Fianna Fáil comes to power as a result of a kind of a controversy during the time of Russell in the United States. He published a statement where he claimed that he met de Valera in government buildings in 1934. At the time, de Valera, of course, is president of the Executive Council. He claims at the time that de Valera requested his presence at government buildings in order to discuss how the IRA could perhaps aid Fianna Fáil. And Russell claims that de Valera pushed for unity between the IRA and Fianna Fáil, provided the IRA surrender its arms to the government and cease all military drilling. And Russell says he dismissed the idea as impractical, and he suggested to de Valera that the IRA could cooperate with him and put the issue of the Republic before the people at the next general election and support it or declare the Republic within a reasonable time. And Russell pushes for this period to be five years. And he added to de Valera, in the meantime, you need have no embarrassments so far as the, we, the IRA, are Concerned, as we'll cooperate with you in every way. And de Valera and Russell's account, no interest in this. And he dismissed the idea and brought the meeting to a close. And there's other like similar accounts in the period of kind of be it leading ministers and Fianna Fáil figures kind of, you know, engaging with different IRA figures at the time to try and push them to encourage to link up with them. But, you know, basically to kind of disarm, disband and don't pursue the route you're going on. Yeah, I mean, if you look at kind of Republican objectives, though, I mean, there's one of them is the total independence of the free state or the state, the Irish state established in 1922, which is what the Republic stands in for, I'd say. There's other Republicans who are left wing who want to talk about the content of the state and what's going to look like. But the third remaining issue is obviously partition and, and Northern Ireland. And this becomes increasingly, you know, what Republicans start to look at in the late 30s, isn't it, Jerry? Yes, very much so. Like Republicans do seem to believe that partition is a means by which they could perhaps carry the argument with the public. I mean, there's evidence in the in the early 1930s that Russell was involved actually with strike activity. The IRA raiding kind of striking tramway workers up in Belfast at the time. And there's evidence that Russell had involvement with that and support of that. And Russell seems to be quite encouraged by members of the Protestant working class being involved in this. But that doesn't really seem to come to anything in terms of a mass support for the IRA. The similar attempts by the IRA in the South to be involved in strike activity. And this seems to kind of obviously get the interest of the likes of Pater O'Donnell and Frank Ryan at the time. But I think with the departure of a lot of left-wing IRA activists in the 1930s, following the failure of the Sahara political initiative and the attempts to form the Republican Congress, that leaves behind a lot of particularly militant figures like Russell to come to the fore. Jared, what do you think about the relationship between Sean Russell and Moss Tuomi? Because he's in the leadership of the IRA for so long and they would have had a close working relationship. How do you think that relationship panned out? I think Moss Toomey is a very overlooked figure in the period. And I know Brian Hanley has written a lot on Toomey's tenure as staff at the time. Toomey, I, I think, does not get enough recognition for the fact that for so long in that decade he was chief of staff, he was able to keep all the disparate elements of the IRA together. He does make reference to Yon Chimikyan that he, he was very much of the opinion he had to kind of keep Russell under control. He had to keep a tight rein on him. Russell from the late 1920s on is he's very much interested in a new bombing campaign in England itself, kind of similar to like the efforts of the IRA during the War of Independence and the Fenians, of course, of the 1880s. You know, it's very interesting then that like even in the 1920s, early 30s, during most two seniors chief of staff, you know, Russell is seen as a potential troublemaker within the ranks, someone who could kind of disrupt the path they're on or the path that Toomey is seeking to bring them it seems to be in the early 1930s that Russell has an interest in expanding his support base within the IRA. As I mentioned before, he kind of cultivated very strong relationships with different units around the country. And he also attracts the interest of Joseph McGarity, the Philadelphia-based leader of Clan Gale, which perhaps a waning influence in Irish America at the time, but was still to some degree a considerable force. Toomey later remarked he wasn't really surprised that Russell and McGarity found a kindred spirit in each other. He says they're both very single-minded in their pursuit of their aims, and they kind of had a tendency to kind of lay down, you know, the political reality of, of a situation. 
McGarrity at the time, like he's very much a diminished figure within Irish political life from his uh, position as leader of Clan Nagel at the time. You know, similar to the IRA leadership within Ireland, McGarrity didn't really recognise the new political dispensation between a fallen power and that they have kind of captured the Republican constituency, so to speak, within Ireland. McGarrity seems to be a belief that Fianna Fáil could, you know, ally with the IRA and again declare the Republic and use the IRA as a means to end partition. You know, it's not very clear when him and Russell make an acquaintance with each other. They don't seem to have properly met until Russell's visit to America in 1936. Russell meets McGarrity in July of 1936. By the end of the first meeting, both of them have reached a complete understanding on a new campaign within England, a new bombing campaign. So, Jerry, we mentioned Northern Ireland as a Republican objective and ending partition. Doesn't Sean Russell and Joe McGarrity and one or two others become associated with the, you know, concentrating on this idea of, of Northern Ireland? And what strategy do they develop to try to end partition? The strategy that McGarrity and Russell between them develop is a new bombing campaign of the English mainland. Belief that is, once, you know, we disrupt the English way of life so much, the British will withdraw from Northern Ireland. And it seems to have, again, been a vague belief that, you know, Fianna Fáil will support them in these efforts once they're proved successful in England, which is a very naive point of view, not only of Fianna Fáil, but that Fianna Fáil would even follow them, even in the off chance they were successful. I mean, Russell comes up against several obstacles within the IRA at this time. The ban on the IRA is actually reinforced by Fianna Fáil in 1936. Moss Toomey is arrested, is then no longer IRA chief of staff from 1936 onwards. The reason for the kind of crackdown on the IRA from Fianna Fáil is there's lots of kind of different instances, the killing of an alleged informer within the IRA. There's the assassination of a retired British Admiral Henry Somerville. Tom Barry becomes chief of staff at that point, and Tom Barry doesn't seem to have been too fond of Russell, as well as that Barry, along with others, are not particularly fond of the fact that Russell is cultivating not only a support base within the IRA, but he's cultivating an alliance with McGarrity for this new bombing campaign that has not met the approval of the IRA leadership. So whereas Russell would have been sent over to the States in 1936 for IRA fundraising and so on, the fact that he's trying to build up support for a bombing campaign that is not proved by the IRA leadership does understandably not go down well with Barry and others, particularly Sean McBride. This leads to, in January 1937, a court-martial, a formal court-martial of Russell and his dismissal from the IRA that one individual who was involved later remarked that Yonche Mikhail was a bit of a farce, really, because Russell didn't provide any defence at this court-martial. He seems to be quite dismissive of the whole affair. But that didn't diminish Russell's support in the IRA, nor with McGarrity himself. He goes back over to the United States in 1937. He's still a publicly speaking support for, you know, the IRA's efforts to end partition, you know, end British rule in Ireland. And that kind of creates a bizarre series of very convoluted circumstances that by the time of the IRA convention in 1938, Tom Barry is dismissed as the IRA chief of staff. And Sean Russell not only is reinstated in the IRA, he becomes the new chief of staff, which is quite a journey for someone who had just been dismissed from the organization over a year before. Well, returning to an old phrase there that England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, we have then the Second World War. And how does this progress things along with Russell's idea for the IRA? Yeah, the outbreak of the war is Ireland's opportunity. It just presents, in the view of the IRA leadership now under Russell, an opportunity to perhaps carry out a bombing campaign in England itself. The IRA had cultivated vague contacts with the Nazi government in Berlin at this time. Russell, in fact, had written to the German ambassador in 1936. From what I can determine, outside the approval of the IRA leadership, but in the letter, Russell sort of promised, you know, aid for the Germans in the case of an invasion of Ireland, and just hoping some sort of military aid from the Nazis at the time. Tom Barry at one point had gone over to Germany to discuss matters with the Nazi government. Doesn't seem to have really come to anything. The proposed bombing campaign begins in January 1939, before the outbreak of war. But at the time, of course, the prevailing political atmosphere within Europe is that war is inevitable with the Nazis' efforts in Europe at the time. So in January 1939, the IRA Army Council issue a proclamation, and it's kind of a proclamation. What the issue is a proclamation is the 1916 proclamation and a 1939 IRA proclamation. And worth reading a segment of it here. It's signed by the IRA Council, including Russell, just, and it says, Unfortunately, because men were foolish enough to treat with an armed enemy within their gates, the English won the peace. Weakness and treachery caused resumption of the war, and the old English tactics of divide and conquer were exploited to the fullest extent. Partition was introduced, the country divided into two parts, with two separate parliaments subject to and controlled by the British government from London. And then it goes on to say, the time has come to make that fight. There is no need to re-declare the Republic of Ireland now or in the future. 
There's no need to reaffirm the Declaration of Irish Independence, but the hour has come for the supreme effort to make both effective. So in the name of the unconquered dead, of the faithful living, we pledge ourselves to this task. And it says, sign on behalf of the Republic Government and the Army Council of Ogden the Heron Irish Republican Army and a listing of the names of the Army Council there. Now, just jumping back slightly, before the outbreak of the bombing campaign, Russell had cultivated support from the former Republican deputies of the Second Doll. Now, the IRA withdrew their allegiance to the Second Doll in 1925. So just to give a brief explanation what the Republican deputies were, the Republican deputies of the Second Doll, the anti-treaty Republican deputies, were those who'd been elected in the 1921 election and considered themselves still members of the Second Doll. They claimed that the Doll had never been formally disbanded during the Civil War, and hence, as a result, they still existed as the rightful parliament of the Irish Republic. It seems to be very much a, a sort of a fringe interest within republicanism at this time, or a fringe belief rather, particularly Sinn Féin at this time, would have adhered to that. And Russell kind of saw an opportunity to link up with these deputies again, some of the surviving deputies, and he agreed to get their... So Russell had an agreement with these deputies to surrender their republican legitimacy. So then the IRA Army Council could claim to be the legitimate, in their view, government of the Irish Republic holding this in trust. So this created a lot of consternation in diplomatic circles. So when this proclamation is issued in January 1939 at the outset of the bombing campaign, the Irish government have to reaffirm to the British government that they are actually not responsible for this statement. You know, it causes understandable diplomatic confusion at the time. The bombing campaign itself begins on the 16th of January 1939 and several major explosions and power stations and electrical lines across England. And there's some, I suppose, in the view of the IRA, initial moderate success. The campaign falls aground between intelligence failures, mass arrests, and inevitable civilian casualties. And it diminished very quickly whatever momentum the campaign has. Dan Keating, an IRA volunteer at the time, says the IRA was very much, they were left at a disadvantage in terms of financial aid and resources and, you know, safe places for them to hide. By the time the campaign peters out in March 1940, there's several hundred Republican men and women imprisoned. Two IRA men, James Barnes and Peter McCormick, have actually been executed. Of the 10 deaths, seven included civilians, and there was 96 injuries across England. So by any measure, the overtly ambitious campaign fails. But, you know, Russell is fairly optimistic for much of it, even though very quickly other leadership figures around him are not very keen on seeing it continue. The arrests and imprisonment, and of course, the two executions, they don't see a path to success for it very quickly. But one group of people, Jared, who were impressed by this, are impressed by the potential of it, was actually the Germans. Isn't that right? Yeah, this seems to be the means by which Russell can put forward to the Germans. He is serious that, you know, the IRA can aid the Germans in the war effort. In roughly late 1939, Russell actually goes over to the United States. Now, it might seem very unusual that he departs the IRA at this time, but Russell, you know, for all his kind of bluster, is very aware that the IRA do, does need more financial aid and means by which to, you know, carry out the campaign, so to speak. He's actually briefly arrested in early 1940 within the United States. And there's actually a brilliant photo, if you can look it up, of him behind bars posing as he's held in the detention center in Detroit. With the aid of supporters in America and some politicians, Russell is released. And with the aid of these same supporters, he is given secret passage to Berlin to meet with members of the Nazi government. This would have built on previous contacts from the IRA in the period. So in May 1940, Russell travels from the United States to Berlin with the aid of the supporters. And it's actually his departure kind of comes at a particularly opportune time for him because the US authorities are actually seeking to deport Russell over soon to expire visa. And they were very kind of worried of a particularly a potential embarrassing diplomatic incident involving King George VI, who would have been visiting the United States at the time. So Russell arrives in Berlin in the summer of 1940. He's accredited full diplomatic privileges by the German authorities. He supplied at a very nice and fancy villa, complete with extensive grounds in the leafy Grunewald suburb. He's also provided with a library, a war maps, and also a radio. This certainly reflects the importance of his presence in the eyes of the German authorities at the time as the chief of staff. His main contact with the German government appears to be a man called Edmund Wessemeyer, who's the German Foreign Office's special advisor in Ireland. And it's worth noting that Wessemeyer was later a key architect of the Nazis' Holocaust policies in both Hungary and Croatia. So there in late May, Russell is trained in the use of sabotage material, and he held conferences with different German military leaders on possible actions on the English mainland. Now, I think what remains clear to any historian of this period is that there doesn't appear to have been any definite plans agreed to between Russell and the Germans, save for the possible transport of Russell back to Ireland to sort of sit and wait and see what happens. That actually operation was referred to as Operation Dove. There seems to have been at least one meeting between Russell and Joachim von Ribbentrop, who's the German foreign minister, and he actually seems to have been particularly impressed by Russell's character. 
But it's said that Russell was sure to kind of keep the German authorities at length, and he wanted no specific strings attached to anything supplied to the IRA. But he, the one request he does make is the release of his old comrade, Frank Ryan, who was in a Spanish prison at the time. Now, Ryan, of course, had left the IRA. He had formed the Elfated Republican Congress in 1934, and he'd fought within the Connolly column during the Spanish Civil War. With the defeat of Republicans in that war, he'd been held in Burgess Prison in Spain. He'd been captured as a part of an Irish contingent who fought with Spanish Republicans against Franco in the in the recent civil war. By any measure, him and Russell had actually gone on very, very different political trajectories since their the splits within the IRA in the 1930s. But when Russell was brought to Berlin in early August, Vesemir kind of was very interested when he watched the reunion between the two former comrades. Russell threw his arms around Frank Ryan and he said, I'm going to Ireland tomorrow, Frank, will you come with me? And Ryan agrees to this. And it might seem very unusual that the two had very friendly relations, but Ryan later wrote to the Irish ambassador in Madrid, Leopold Kearney, that he as in Russell, and I were always very good personal friends. So regardless of their kind of political fallout early on, there doesn't seem to be any kind of personal animosity between them, which is very interesting. I suppose it shows many of the contradictions within the IRA that you had people who apparently Absolutely. fundamentally disagreed. You had Frank Ryan, who was basically a communist of sorts by that point, uh, who had fought mm-hmm. for the Spanish Republic. You had Don Russell, who wasn't a ideological Nazi, I don't think, but was certainly prepared to cooperate with them. So, you know, I suppose it shows the contradictory and confused nature of the IRA in the interwar years. Absolutely, absolutely. When you read the IRA propaganda at the time, there is support for the Nazi government in it, even though earlier Republican periodicals would have condemned Nazi incursions at the time they happened and sort of treatment of the Jewish populace. But by 1939, 1940, you do see outright support for a possible German invasion of Ireland within the IRA propaganda at the time. I mean, of the personal beliefs of individuals, I mean, it goes everything from outright support to kind of reluctant support to, you know, individuals that are claiming, I didn't really kind of think much of the Nazis at the time at all. So it's very much a broad church within the IRA as to where they stand, you know, fundamentally on not only Nazi actions, but Nazi ideology itself. And my understanding from what the Germans wanted from the deal was they basically wanted an insurgency inside Northern Ireland to keep British resources tied up there. Yeah, I think there's attempts to develop that more after Russell's death. I mean, one German spy... Hermann Goritz, he later said after the war, in spite of the fine qualities of individual IRA men, as a body, I considered them worthless. A leader once boasted to me that he had in a certain district. I was not really interested in 5,000 sworn members. I answered him that I personally would be completely satisfied with 500 men who knew how to obey an order. I would march into Belfast and destroy the Harland and Wolf shipyards. And these men would have done more for Ireland than 5,000 talking about the second doll and the third doll and the legality. So I mean, to be clear, that's a post-war perception of the Germans towards the IRA. But I mean, particularly after Russell's death, you know, whatever plans are developed don't really come to anything. And by the time Russell is sent back to Ireland, there is no firm plan in place as to what exactly he is meant to leave. I mean, a surviving Abwar war diary that Sean Cronin quotes from stated that Russell was given no definite assignment of any sort all the German foreign officers gave him is the chance to make use of Ireland's opportunity. So when he goes back on the submarine, he has a specialist wireless set to communicate with Berlin in a code. And there's kind of a hint as well that Russell was to keep an eye, or Russell, or rather IRA agents, were to keep an eye on the German ambassador residence within Dublin to see the flower plots arranged within the window in a certain way to respond to it. Like very, very strange, vague stuff. And as well as that, Frank Ryan had no indication as to what exactly Russell's plans were. He made that very clear in the aftermath. I had no clue what Russell had planned or what exactly I was coming to Ireland to help him do. The destination of the two men appears to be Smerwick Bay on the Dinkle Peninsula. They were to arrive there by the August the 15th and from there make their way to Dublin. So the German U-boat they were aboard incredibly seemed to successfully make it through the British blockade and but unfortunately, like the cramped quarters and the lack of fresh air and exercise, Ryan says, was very arduous for the two of them and faithfully so for Russell. From the outset of the journey, he seems to have suffered severe vomiting and stomach pains. And despite the efforts of a medical orderly and Ryan himself, his cramps increased in severity and he died on August the 14th with the U-boat only hundreds of miles west of Galway. And Ryan says he later died in his arms as he tried to treat him. Russell's brother would later claim that Russell actually suffered severe stomach issues throughout his whole life. And it seems to be determined that he later died of a burst ulcer. Ryan had to give a sworn affidavit to the German authorities on his return. Ryan made a decision to actually go back to Berlin with the U-boat, a decision he said he later regretted. 
And he was very annoyed at later speculation that he somehow was involved in Russell's death, that he poisoned him. He said to Leopold Kearney the following year, these rumours of Sean having met a violent death in Gibraltar or Barcelona are absurd. To my knowledge, he never set foot in either. The other rumour about my part in alleged assassination doesn't worry me. And he says that he hopes to return Russell's personal effects to his family, including his watch. And uh, that unfortunately never happened. There's also an interesting reference that Russell may have actually sat for a portrait during his time in Berlin. Unfortunately, that, of course, was lost during the later uh, invasion of uh, Germany by the Allied forces. Well, Jared, as we were talking there before about what the Germans would have expected from the IRA and what the IRA themselves would have expected in terms of activities during the Second World War, one of the things that did happen was massive, massive repression from the governments in Dublin and Belfast. What would the IRA have even been capable of with this type of repression going on? Uh, to be blunt, not much or nothing. By 1939, like the IRA already has a considerably diminished membership. They're a far cry from the military force that shaped the events of the War of Independence and the Civil War. I mean, like you said, at the outset of the war, like both the governments of Northern Ireland and the Free State, of course, what becomes ERA in 1937, we're very much ready for any kind of activity by the IRA. Hundreds are rounded up, interned. I mean, an execution follows in 1940, but in Northern Ireland, after Russell's death, several executions of IRA members follow. De Valera's government allow IRA members to die in hunger strike. You know, they were riffing with informers. There was disputes in the organisation. The man who replaces Russell, Stephen Hayes, you know, is suspected of being an informer. That creates a dispute within the IRA itself that has major reverberations throughout the organization. I mean, that quote I mentioned from Hermann Goertz, that the Germans were not impressed with the IRA after the war itself. The Germans seem to have really underestimated the strength of the IRA within Ireland. They seem to have thought they had a very close relationship with Fianna Fáil that, of course, they didn't have. I mean, I think there's a misunderstanding then on the IRA's part as to how eager the Germans are to aid them. I mean, there's some very complimentary uh, passages in some Republican propaganda at the time. I'll, I'll read from one from uh, January 1940. It's signed by Pete Fleming, or rather Peter Fleming, who was a member of the IRA Army Council at Russell. And this is a very interesting paragraph. The Third Reich, as the guardian and energizing force of European policy, is inevitably interested in the continuity of these principles of national freedom enunciated in the past by Germany and the other great European powers. And if in the prosecution of the present war, German forces should land in Ireland, they will land as if they did in 1916 as friends and liberators of the Irish people. Germany desires in Ireland neither territory nor the fruit of economic penetration. Her reward for any help that she may accord directly or indirectly is the freedom of civilized nations from the intolerable yoke of Britain and Britain's satellites and the reconstruction of a free and progressive Europe. Now, there's several in that statement. That's quite a leap. And the pamphlet is sort of wider contextualized the IRA supports for Germany in terms of the support the volunteers and the IRB sought around the time of 1916. So even at the time of the IRA saying, oh, this is nothing new. We're just seeking the aid from Britain's enemy. You know, it does raise very interesting questions for the legacy of the IRA in that time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the recent spat and, and obviously uh, interpretation of this period does tend to get caught up in contemporary politics. But, mm-hmm. you know, one interpretation one could draw is Sean Russell announces that the IRA, which he sees as a military body, is the government of Ireland, despite the numerous elections that had taken place. And then he goes off and he allies with the enemy of of democracy in the world, I suppose, at the time, Nazi Germany. And I suppose that's where the vitriol around this debate comes from. You know, that view that the IRA was the enemy of Irish democracy. Yeah, very much so. Like the heart of the debate over Sean Russell's statue. Which, can I just add, is not just a statue to him. It's a statue to all the IRA members who were killed at that time, be it by execution or hunger strike or otherwise, like their names are listed along the base of his statue. I mean, I think this kind of ties into a fundamental belief within republicanism that like there's an unbroken chain of resistance and like there's an unending chain of resistance from 1798 up until, you know, perhaps the more recent conflict in Northern Ireland. And it's all the same thing. Republicanism and the resistance to British rule is all the same thing. And as a result, the modern day inheritors of the Republican tradition, they have to answer for Sean Russell and his statue and the stance he took in 1940. And with that, you don't really have a great reflection, both from, I'd argue, modern day admirers of Russell and also from people who were opposed to the statue itself. as to what exactly that support for Nazi Germany meant to the IRA and the wider Republican community at the time and by Sean Russell himself. Now, we know from Sean Russell, Sean Russell was very single-minded. He was a militant. He believed in the use of arms to overthrow British rule in Ireland and end partition. 
it's very clear he was not somebody who thought very much on the premise of political activity or exactly, you know, the ins and outs of Republican ideology or how Republican ideology might shift and, you know, take account of, you know, new political dispensation, both within Ireland and internationally. You know, as Cottle said earlier, earlier, the belief was merely England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. I do believe it's valid as a historian to tackle what that connection meant and how much the IRA really thought about what that would mean if, you know, if, if Nazi Germany did turn their eye to Ireland, if they did invade, like, what would that mean? I mean, at the same token, I mean, of Russell himself, I, I don't think it's fair to say he was an outright Nazi and he was an outright fascist. There's a very interesting quote from, from a man called Edwin Lehosen, who was a German intelligence agent, and he actually wrote a very interesting account that was published in the Irish Times of his dealings with Russell in Berlin in 1940. And the quote he uses is, is often cited, and I, I think just worth worth the reading in full and commenting on further. Lahosen claims that Russell said, I am not a Nazi. I'm not even pro-German. I'm an Irishman fighting for the independence of Ireland. The British have been our enemies for hundreds of years. They are the enemies of Germany today. If it suits Germany to give us help to achieve independence, I'm willing to accept it, but no more and there must be no strings to the help. Now, it's worth noting that was published in 1958, so that point we're nearly two decades after Russell's death. Lahosen, he also sums up Russell as a hypersensitive Celt who regarded the Nazi philosophy as anathema. Yet Lahosen, he kind of seems to take a strong personal liking to what he refers to as the curious Irishman, and he admires Russell's integrity and honesty. There's a very interesting detail in that article. On the unveiling of the Russell statue in 1951, and I should be clear, the first statue of Sean Russell, there's a mention in an article published in the United Irishman that Russell was buried at sea in a Nazi flag, you know, which is a very kind of inglorious ending for him. But Lahosen, in his article in 1958, actually states that, oh, we buried him in the flag of the Irish Free State, which, of course, we all know is the tricolour. So a very, very interesting detail there that, that, that differs, I think. But there's also an alleged account that I've seen Sean Cronin and other use from the British Secret Service. And, you know, I look forward to the day I can get into the QR codes and look at this. And you, might, you would assume that the British Secret Service would be very eager to prove a link between Irish Republicanism and Nazis. And when they interviewed German officials after the war, they ultimately concluded that Russell displayed, quote, considerable reticence towards the Germans. And he plainly did not regard himself as a German agent. So that weirdly links up with what Lahosen said. You know, So it's very interesting there. We have two very different sources saying Russell was not an adherent to the Nazi ideology. And he didn't seem to profess any great belief in it. He just regarded the German government at the time as a means for the IRA to achieve its aims. Well, it is interesting, the fact that the statue is so prominent in Dublin. So many people see it. It's in Fairview Park. It's been attacked by right and left over the years. I'm sure we can all remember that period where there was swastikas painted on it and red and black everywhere. And it continues to be controversial because only a few years ago, Mary Lou MacDonald was making a speech there. Some people have used the word collaborator about him. And other people were debating whether that was an accurate term to use. It's because it has a very specific meaning, collaborator. But it looks like the controversy will continue as long as that statue exists. The statue has always been controversial, even on its uh, veiling in 1951. When it was unveiled in 1951, there was a crowd of several thousand people gathered for its unveiling. And there's different political groups represented, Sinn Féin, Fianna Aaron, the trade union movements. You know, I think there was a GAA elements there even, and, you know, notable figures, you know, a bit of a, bit of a who's who of, of kind of the far left and, you know, different political movements at the time. It was unveiled by a representative from Clan Gael, you know, which proves that, you know, Russell still had his uh, supporters in the United States at the time. There's a letter that was actually written to the Times by Brian O'Higgins, who's, you know, was someone who was, someone was a very, it was a major Republican figure at the time. And Brian O'Higgins felt the statue, as it was unveiled in 1951, was not a very manly representation of Russell, which I thought was a very interesting uh, point of controversy from one Republican quarter. Yeah, as you mentioned, Carl, it's been attacked over the years. Like, I mean, there's a news article I came across where it was alleged that, um, like, originally Russell's arm was kind of in a clench, his right arm is in a clenched fist, and that was broken off by local children who were said to have kicked it around like a football. It's been allegedly attacked by an anti-communist group. Very fascinating when you think of the later controversies of the Russell statue. You know, the, the statue itself was decapitated. It's very interesting to note as well. That is actually not the only statue of Sean Russell that we currently have in Ireland at the moment. A new statue went up in 2009 at Fairview Park. That's the statue that exists today. That is the statue that we all know. That's the statue that has been the point of reference for several of these recent controversies. I was very curious, actually, what happened to the original decapitated statue. And I asked a leading member of the National Graves Association what exactly happened to it. Well, you might be glad to hear Sean Russell, the original, 
statue found a second home in the Cashel folk village where he was restored and he stands there today. I believe the historian Martin Dwyer was responsible for that. So, yeah, I mean, the, to, it seems to be held as something against the current leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald. She spoke there at a commemoration to Russell in 2003. The main speaker at that event was uh, Brian Keenan, who's later after his passing, seen as a leading member of the Provisional IRA Army Council. I thought even Keenan's words at the particular commemoration were very interesting because Keenan seems to refer to the ambiguity of Russell's stance within republicanism. Keenan said, I don't know what was in the depth of Sean Russell's thinking down the years, but I'm sure he was never far from Pierce's own position, who said, as a patriot preferring debt to slavery, I know no other way. There are things worse than bloodshed and slavery is one of them. We are not and we will not be slaves. So it's very interesting, even in 2003, there you have like the traditional Republican standpoint on Russell. You know, he was just trying to achieve the aim, you know, of others in, in times past, such as Tone and Roger Casement. Like even in the 1951 article on the unveiling, which has a biography of Sean Russell, it refers to Sean Russell as a worthy successor of Tony Casement. So I think that view will continue to endure in Republican circles about Sean Russell. And I think, you know, the controversy, as long as that statue is there, will still go on. Like there's people who still oppose and regard him as a collaborator with Nazi Germany. I mean, he's really disputed that he was a collaborator in the sense that we know as Nazi collaborators in different countries at the time. But there's no doubt Russell was very politically naive and he wasn't really recognizing, you know, the international situation properly as it stood at the time. And I think for historians, that's worthy of debate. It's worthy of exploring. But I'd argue that's probably separate to, you know, the very strong controversy that continues to ensue over the statue. Because I think people on both sides of the debate, and, you know, they're perfectly entitled to have their own point of view. They don't really look at the ambiguities and the complexities of the time, both of Russell himself, but also of Irish republicanism and wider Irish society. But I think when you look at Sean Russell and how he's held in such affection by people, like Oscar Trainer went a very different political path to Russell. He speaks with very highly. Liam Daly took the pro-treaty side of the Civil War. He calls Russell the most incorruptible Irishman. You know, I mean, this affection and regard for Russell is held very strongly within Republicanism itself, within his peers in the IRA at the time. Like several people said to Yon Shimikyon during his interviews that Russell gave the IRA a direction that had really lacked since the Civil War. So regardless of the military failure of the bombing campaign, you know, that's the reason he's held up as this great Republican martyr, this great Republican hero. You know, military failure doesn't stop anyone being regarded as a great Republican hero. So in that sense, it's not surprising why he got a statue so quickly after his death. Well, thank you very much, Jared. That was a really interesting overview of the life of former chief of staff of the IRA, Sean Russell. And you can also check out Jared's blog on jaredshannon.com. And we're looking forward as well to the upcoming book by Jared on Liam Lynch, the chief staff of the IRA during the Civil War. So you can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it. And we're so grateful for all the support and feedback we get from you, the listeners. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-host, John Dorney, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.